gentlemen, welcome to JudgeCast. This is episode 251. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Perlman, and I am joined this evening, afternoon, morning drive to work by, with, one Jacob Malici. Hello, everyone. It's me, again. I'm joined by, no, I'm joined by, joined with, joined by sounds better, yeah. I'm Both of them are fine. Joined with? I think after 251 episodes, I wouldn't be having these existential questions. You know... Who can say how long it actually takes you to master something? Like, have you folded 1,000 paper cranes? I I can't even fold a fitted bed sheet. <laughs> you and me both, my friend. I have, I have no idea. I've watched YouTube videos, and it's wizards are real, ladies and gentlemen in the audience. They, they, there's some magicians out there that can fold a fitted bed sheet. I cannot. So speaking of folding bed sheets, uh, are general topic for today isn't and that is to say that we rather than going over like really diving into specific on on one concept or or talking uh, about something like investigations or or some other aspect related to judging we're going to be looking at the some things that we might have covered but they don't really constitute a full episode worth of material but before we do any of that, uh, I know that today an announcement got posted, uh, today for us, so, so when we're recording, uh, but an uh, announcement got posted about the future of organized paper play throughout the remainder of 2020. And I just wanted to acknowledge it and say that I understand a lot of people, that, that hits a lot of people very hard, uh, and a lot of them are fellow judges, people who, who presumably listen to this podcast, and that means that your opportunity for doing this this thing that we love and that, that helps bring us all together is going to be impeded for a significant period of time, and that will result in some financial hardship for some people, uh, as well as it severe emotional hardship. And I just wanted to say, we understand uh, and it might seem silly to be talking about some of these various different things related to judging, but the way that I see it, this isn't a permanent thing. Uh, and in trying to keep that fire lit and trying to keep us going in talking about things that we're excited about, that we're passionate about, about this hobby slash career, depending on your level of engagement, uh, is I think still has a lot of value. And so we're we're trying to provide that sort of semblance of some stability and some normalcy. Uh, and if, as well, anybody who, who knows me, who's friends with me on Facebook or whatnot, if you ever have a moment where you're just, you're flagging, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to talk with you through this. So part participating in the judge community is more than just events. Like, Events are fun. We do events. That's that's kind of you know judging involves judging. Yet at the <laughs> yet at the same time we talk about we talk about the the strength of the community. And right now that's predominantly what we are. So continuing to stay involved, continuing to you know talk to people, uh, interact with people, do a Jackbox game night, getting getting together grilling each other with rules questions uh just staying engaged is really a good way to stay active stay involved and 
when events do start back up, you're going to be in a much better position than people that maybe atrophied some. Problematic, it's difficult because I know a lot of people, there there are a lot of, you know, air, air quotes, professional judges, lowercase p, we're not talking like levels or anything like that. They derive their income from running events. And this is definitely uh, uh, concern is, is a problem. So just, you know, even even if you know somebody that's struggling, you know, reach out, offer them, offer them some help, offer them some assistance, send them a fruit basket. I don't know. That's an awful idea, but you know, I mean, um, depends if it's a hermetically sealed fruit basket. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> it, well, I mean, I was, I was thinking more of one with like, you know, like chocolate covered strawberries. That's hermetically sealed, right? If I encase it in chocolate, does that count? I, well, yeah. As so. I, I really want to yes hand you here, but I'm a scientist and I have to say no, that doesn't work. Yeah, I think it does work. <laughs> and since I'm doing the editing, I'm going to win. <laughs> that counts. It's hermetically sealed. It's encased. Not. Nope. Just, okay. Just whatever it is, whatever fruit, just put it in chocolate. It keeps for years. So other than the uh, value and merits of encasing things in chocolate to protect you from potential viral infection. Uh, I agree with everything Brian just said. Oh, I was just talking about keeping the food fresh, protecting from virus infections. I don't know. I mean, no, probably not. Just wipe it, get a Clorox wipe, and just wipe the chocolate down before you eat it. You'll be fine. <sighs> Jesus. Um, what, would it sound better if it came? Uh, never mind. I'm not going to go there. Uh-huh. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so like, We're starting with this maybe, energy tonight. Maybe I I'll tweet it or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 You, will, you will probably get... Something uh, attached to your tweet later saying that this might not be entirely factual. And as long as you're cool with that, you can say whatever you want. I <laughs> I might throw a big giant fit that ultimately means nothing. Okay. So talking about magic and big events and paper events and things that happen at paper events. The first uh, sort of we can't fit this into a single episode. Uh, first of all, because it would be ludicrous. And secondly, because... It doesn't quite have enough content to talk about. Is a format some people may not have even heard of. Oh, we, if you go back in the way, way back machine, there's Judge Cast episodes where we've kind of made fun of this. Right. And, like, in all seriousness, I think this format rules. It is so wild. It is so refreshing and different from any other magic playing experience I've ever observed. Um, but it is it is very different, and I think because it is so niche, it doesn't see a lot of play at tournaments, both because people aren't aware of it, and because I think there's not very many people who know how to run it. I think there's probably some other reasons, too. Is It's, <laughs> it's a logistical headache, for sure. It's a, it's a CF, okay? Right. Yeah. It's a, but it's a... It, it is by design a CF, and I think that is part of the beauty inherent in the chaos that is the grand melee variant of multiplayer magic play. Yes, I understand. A lot of people are like, when is that going to show up? I know for a fact Gen Con ran these uh, for, for some of the magic events, at least at some point. And I would like to see more of that because that, that gives you a really unique convention experience to be able to run a format like this book. But I digress. What in the world is Grand Melee, right? It's a magic card. Factually accurate. What is the... So, so let me rephrase my question, because you're right. 
and I'm gonna let you finish. But what do, what do I mean is, what does the grand melee multiplayer vary? Okay, so when you play in multiplayer, normally people think of like four or five magic players mm-hmm. at, at a game. Maybe six if you're playing Emperor, but everybody knows if you add more than more than six, if you go up to seven or eight, you're gonna be sitting there twiddling your thumbs for. 45, 50 minutes yeah, it... between taking turns. But the cool thing about Grand Melee is they've worked out a way so that a 10-player game isn't misery on a stick. Yeah. Instead, it's just bananas. So it, it's designed for... Bananas on a stick? Bananas on a stick. Chocolate-covered bananas chocolate? on there a stick. There we go. They're in that fruit basket. Yeah, because it's Look delicious. Look at how foreshadowing. It's delicious and often frozen? Uh, anyway, the... <laughs> Uh, the this is really designed for ten or more players as a format. So that right there gives you an indication of the level of scope we're talking about when we're talking about the the grand melee variant. It's free for all, so every person's for themselves. And as Brian said, they they found a way to make it not take forever to get through effectively what would be a single turn cycle. Uh, we'll get into that in a bit. Because um, I'll tell you, in a multiplayer game, I've actually cast Time Stop on a person just so the game could continue. <laughs> I believe it. I so definitely like, You're taking too it. long. So. Let's continue. So, um, first thing to know about Grand Melee is like any other multiplayer variant, there's some options you get to pick, but some you don't. Uh, we're going to mostly talk about the ones that you don't because they're part of what makes the format work. Uh, the first is there's this thing called limited range of influence. This case, in the case of Grand Melee, it uses limited range of influence one. So what does that mean? Well, it means that when I'm sitting down at the table to play the format, I've got a player to my left and a player to my right. My stuff and those two players' stuff is the only stuff that my stuff can affect. And I can only be affected by those players. So that has a lot of implications, but if you want to sort of distill it down and sort of parse it into its core of what it's trying to do, the intent behind limited range of influence is to make it so that at any given point in time, only two players can be interacting with you. In in, in part, it's to make the gameplay better, yeah. because if I only have to worry about the person on my left and the person on my right... I now have enough information to see. But if I got to worry about that person six chairs down from me, uh-huh. I'm going to be getting up. What do they got over there? I got to pay attention. If they can snipe me, I don't want to leave myself open to that guy. Way down at the end of the hall is just going to come. I'm going to swing. Yeah, and someone's no. going to yell, hey, hold on. And then they're just going to come running up with a lightning bolt. It's, you know, the, the format is chaotic. It's not quite that chaotic, thankfully. Uh, well, it's because is... of limited range of influence. It's doing, yep. you know, it's doing work. It's doing heavy lifting. This is a quality of life improvement in the form of a rule. Uh, yeah. And so this affects spells, abilities, uh, damage, attacking, making choices, and, very importantly, winning the game. In in other multiplayer formats or, or 1v1, if I have an effect that says I win the game, that's it. Game's done. Uh, when you're dealing with a limited range of influence one, me winning the game merely causes the people on either side of me to lose the game. And if it's a one-shot effect, and there's more players still there, the game will continue still. Other things that are not uh, optional, the what is called the attack left option is used. Uh, this means that you win attacking, 
only attack the player immediately to your left, and are only attacked by, can only be attacked by the player immediately to your right. So everybody is attacking left. But everybody, remember, this is a free-for-all format, so everybody's your opponent, but you are limited in who your creatures can attack. What is it, the magic, that makes it so that this game isn't, like, nine hours long and that I'm not waiting 40 minutes to take a turn? I'm so glad you asked. Strap yourself in for a concept that exists nowhere else in the rules. We're going to talk about a little thing called turn markers. Oh, are they like uh, uh, the Brazilian steakhouses? Oh, God, if only. Uh, get some <laughs> of that. Like, you sit down for a game of Grand Melee, everybody gets complimentary cinnamon pineapple. I am in. That sounds amazing. <laughs> no. Before turn it over, green means go. <laughs> green means pass the turn, red bring it. <laughs> bring it. <laughs> so, this is this is what makes Grand Melee not take forever. Uh and it's the fact that the consequence of this is allows multiple players to take turns simultaneously. So, yep, I'm going I'm going to let that sink in. Multiple players can be can and will be taking turns at the same time. Uh, and this is sort of in the rules to make sure that these games don't take forever and get boring. Because as Brian mentioned earlier, if you're waiting for somebody six seats down to finish with their turn. And then while you're waiting for that, they're taking a long turn. You've still got a line of players between you and them that you have to wait for. Uh, nobody's going to want to play that game because you spend far more time not playing than you spend playing. The way this works uh, is we have these things called turn markers. And the rule is... There is one turn marker for every four players, and that's rounded down. So that means if you have eight players, there's going to be two turn markers. Ten players, still two turn markers. Twelve is when you get to three turn markers, etc., etc. All right. The way they get doled out initially is the starting player for the whole grand melee gets the first turn marker. Then four seats to their left, that player gets the second turn marker, and then four seats to the left of that player, and so on until they've all been dished out for your initial count. And then everyone with a turn marker gets to start their turn. Uh, when you end your turn or you leave the game, you pass the turn marker. I'm going to stop for a second. So just to reiterate, right. you got a turn marker at the start of that. You get to start your turn like right at the start of the game. That is actually the only time that's always true. Because when you're passing a turn marker, you might pass it to a player, but they might not be able to take a turn yet. Uh, so there's another rule that says if you've been past a turn marker, if a player's been past a turn marker, they don't be get to be, they don't get to begin their turn until there is not a turn marker at any of the three seats to that player's left. So the turn markers try to preserve their spacing such that you don't end up with a queue of them all lined up at one person, and that also prevents uh, players from who you know, take a slow or might take a slower turn or whatever, being able to benefit from that by being able to basically queue up a bunch of turns at once, which is not the intent of the turn markers. The intent is to make the the huge grand melee resolve itself faster. Right? And because of the limited range of influence rules, this actually works out pretty well in practice, uh, provided that everybody understands how they work. And usually you've got to have uh a judge or somebody on hand who's essentially a custodian of these uh not what only if, for if, oh go oh, on. sorry go on. yeah i'm going 
Well, I was gonna, I was gonna say one of the one of the cool things about the the three spaces is, uh, <laughs> like if I'm taking my turn and I'm casting spells to mess with the guy on my right, the player on my right, if the turn marker is only two spots away, the player on that player's right might be in the middle of attacking them. Yep. So that player between me, like if the turn markers get too close, that player in the middle could be like in my main phase, but in the other player's combat step. And it's like, I, what, when do I, what do I do? Yeah, it can get very confusing very quickly. So it's, it's again, it's designed so that it makes it work and is fluid. So uh, as I mentioned, uh, somebody on hand to be a custodian of the turn markers, I do sort of mean that in a constant maintenance thing, because remember that thing I said about one turn marker per four players? Uh, this is not a start of the game and then you have that many turn markers for the entire grand melee. We're checking that constantly. Anytime a player would leave the game, we're going to look at the total number of players uh, minus that one. And we're going to go, hey, how many turn markers should there be? If we've got more turn markers than we're supposed to, we start to do what's called designating them for removal. Which is a lot of words to say that we may likely remove this turn marker. <laughs> but there's a whole process to go through to determine what turn markers get removed and, and etc. Because... Because people are taking turns at the same time across a huge thing, multiple people can be leaving the game at the same time, and you might actually end up in a scenario where you actually need to remove two turn markers, or something to that effect. Uh, because you go from having ten players to having seven players. It's just, once you get the hang of, of dealing with it, it does work. It's just new, because again, nothing else functions this way. So... Another important thing to keep in mind, because you're you're in this limited range of influence game, people can be leaving the game all over the place through stuff that you're not even doing. When a player leaves the game, right, uh, the players that were on either side of those seats don't enter each other's range of influence until the next turn in that area, right, begins, if that makes sense. So, like, if I've got... um. If I've got, uh, let's see, Claire on my right and April on my left, right, and I beef it, I'm out of the game. April and Claire don't immediately enter each other's range of influence, even though there's no player between them anymore. Uh, we wait until the next turn begins to then consolidate that and say, well, now this is your range of influence. Now they are within. Now you can see each other. All right, so I know what you're thinking. We've said the ter word turn a lot, and we've talked about extra turns, but sometimes game mechanics let you take extra turns. Yeah. <laughs> so how does that work with turn markers? You, you, you know, no. What, <laughs> no? Why would you... <laughs> why would you do that? <laughs> why would you do that? That sounds awful. So I'm playing a game of vintage Grand Melee, and I fire off my time walk. Uh, while well, I've got the turn marker, turn marker number... A lighthouse four. Chronologist. Yeah. Or, um, what was it, Artisan of Forms? Is that the one that let you, from Theros, let you take an extra turn if you remove five heroic counters? It's not Forms. Whatever. I don't remember the name of it. Well, light Lighthouse Chronologist is that card that lets you, once you've leveled it up all the way, it lets yes. you take a turn after everybody else takes a turn. <laughs> um. Yeah. Still affected by a limited range of influence. Thank goodness. So, there's a rule for this. 
So if something causes a player with the turn marker to take an extra turn after the current one, they just they keep the turn marker and they start the next turn after that turn ends. Uh, they do this unless there's another turn marker too close on either side at that time. Um, so basically, if there's something within three seats that player's left, they wait to begin that until uh, it's passed to four seats to their left. Um, same thing if there's one three seats to their right, um, it gets a little hairy. Uh, so, so they'll do that immediately, I think, in that case. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They do it immediately in that case, because otherwise, like, they're just queuing up three turns in a row. Um, so it's, it's still obeying the, the passing turn marker to the left rule. Basically, you would pass it to yourself. If you couldn't have taken a turn with a turn marker passed to yourself, you have to wait until you could legally take that turn. Um, next, last bit on this whole turn marker fiasco until we get into how stacks work. Uh, if an effect would cause a player to take an extra turn after the current turn, but that player wouldn't have a turn marker at the start of that turn, uh, they take an extra turn immediately before their next turn instead. So what that means is if I play something like Nexus of Fate, so it's an instant speed effect, I can play it not on my turn, and it lets me take an extra turn after this one, right? Um, if I don't, if I'm not going to be past a turn marker at the start of that Nexus of Fate turn, I wait until I would have a turn from a turn marker, and then I take the extra turn first, and then I take that normal turn. Got it? Clear as mud. <laughs> so that is all I have to say about turns. So if you are a judge and you find yourself at one of these events that has this kind of event, it's probably a good idea to sit down with the rules and maybe get like, you know, clothespins because people still have those. You know, make up like, make like, put a little circle of Lego people around, minifigs, and then just move them around and see and kind of visualize how this works because you really don't want to be figuring out how to do marker math mid-tournament. Right. And uh, I think that's a... It's, these are concepts that I think are, are difficult to deal with abstractly, but once you have something physical to interact with and you can see how the machine works, then it becomes a lot... It, it starts to make more sense, basically. Uh, you can even start observing some consequences and go oh that's why that extra turn rule is bananas and works the way that it does because otherwise this would be able to happen there's one other interesting strange thing that can happen in grand melee games that separates it from other formats but i've been talking for a while brian would you like to lead into this before i talk more or do you want me to just keep going okay, no it's it's all right, so Grand Melee games, there's multiple stacks. <laughs> yeah, there are. You got stacks on stacks. Yeah, well, more stacks adjacent to stacks. Stacks, stacks immediately next to, but respecting social distancing stacks. Right, like it's a stack of pancakes. <laughs> I have my stack of pancakes, and you have your stack of pancakes, and each stack of pancakes kind of hovers around um, a turn marker. It's sort of like a Towers of Hanoi, only... You can put butter and syrup on it. <laughs> so. Um, basically, you've got your, this is, this is the, the brilliance of the turn marker and the spacings between them. 
So I get the I get the turn marker. I start taking my turn. I'm going through my steps and phases, and I can only see the person to my left and the person to my right. And someone three seats down could be in the middle of combat and doing doing things. Okay, so the the two stacks are are spaced out with range of influence. They don't really interact. Right, and that's to prevent things that would suddenly appear on a stack of ones choosing, uh, but can't because they're in different steps or phases. It gets really weird, although there's some rules to cover that too. Basically, how this ends up working is if you get to see multiple stacks because players within your range of influence each have an object on a different stack. You've got, you potentially have choices, but your choices are going to be limited based on what effect you want to you want to put onto the stack, onto a stack, uh, is doing. If it's a triggered ability, then it has to go on the stack of the thing that triggered. Okay? You can't put it on the other one that you can see. If it's making a copy of a spell on one of those stacks, or, or causing a player to cast a spell be, by resolving on one of those stacks, it also has to go on that same stack. Can't go on a different one. And lastly, uh, this is the double negative example. So if you've got, if you can see spells on the stack to your left and a stack to your right, you can't cast double negative, which says counter up to two target spells, targeting both of them. There's a rule saying you cannot cast a spell targeting two different objects on two different stacks, because it has to exist on the stack of the object it's targeting, and it can't exist on two stacks at the same time. Clear as mud. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to ask okay. Uh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's yeah. that's a lot. I guess, I guess I guess it's it's almost like a a local a local variable in the sense, you know, if you're doing programming or something yeah. like that. If you're interacting with something on a stack, then you're in whatever turner phase that stack is that you're interacting with. And if you've got another thing over there on the other side, you're interacting with it with whatever Turner phase it's in. And they might be different, but you're kind of in the middle there because the turn markers are supposed to be, there's supposed to be three seats in between the turn markers. Mm -hmm. So in order for this to happen, you'd have to be that person in the middle where it's like, it's like two seats over from either turn marker. Or just, you've got a string of players that have effects building on the stack and that string eventually gets to you because remember yeah yeah, but so there there are ways that it can happen uh for sure and oftentimes those are the times when a player's like i have no idea how this works this is masochist and you say well you say oftentimes how often does this really happen i mean i have only observed a game of grand melee occurring i have seen in that game of grand melee like two or three instances within that one game of a player going like, oh, I can, I have two different things, like looking to their left and their right going, I can interact with both of these. I need you all to pause because I need to see if I want to do anything. So like they're getting priority on two stacks at the same time and it's very confusing for them. And then someone uh, ultimates Karn and <laughs> you just flip the table. Yeah, I don't flip the table. <laughs> flip, the, flip the table. So that's Grand Melee. I think that it is a it's a very fun, very interesting format um, that has a lot of mechanics that are 
basically designed to make sure that it can work without taking a solar year. And I think it's pretty clever. And I also have a, a fondness for it because it is a it's a format you basically you, you gotta play it more casually is not right quite the right term because you definitely can try to spike a grand melee event, but it's difficult to do with that many random actors. It's organized chaos and that can be very fun to engage with. Uh, so that's all the notes I have on Grand Melee, the multiplayer that's a lot. variant. That's a lot. Yeah, uh, I took so many like you, notes. You, you took a lot of notes. We cut so some the, for time. The topic that I'm going to be talking about, the little the little bite-sized nugget of information, is I'm going to be talking about taking notes. You know, it's kind of one of these things. It's We frequently get questions, you know, maybe like, when I say frequently, like once or twice, someone asks a question about notes. You know, can can I look at these notes? Can I take these notes? Can my opponent see the notes that I'm taking? So we're going to explain what the rules are. And this is out of the uh, the Magic Tournament rules. Predominantly, we'll talk a little bit about the, the IPG. But, you know, that's a thing. Magic Tournament rules are things that judges need to know. Various sections and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's two different types of notes. Okay. Those that understand binary and those that don't. Wait, no. There's two types of notes. Ones that can extrapolate from incomplete information. No, there's two there's different one, types there's of notes. There's one zero kinds of notes. Uh, yes. Notes, notes written by me and notes written legibly. There's two different, all jokes aside, there's two different types of notes. There's notes written before a match, and they don't even have to be rendered, printed out on your computer, whatever. So, so notes that are created before the match, and then notes that are created during a match. And the rules are slightly different for the two sets of notes. All right. Notes that are written or created during a match can be accessed at any time. Okay. So you thought sees a person, you write down the cards that are in their hand. This happens game one. You can look at those notes game two, game three. You can look at them between games, whatever. Doesn't matter. Notes that are written before the match, okay, can only be accessed between games. Okay. So, uh, game between game between game one and game two. So, if you've printed out like a sideboard guide, you can't pull that thing out before the match starts. Okay, you can pull it out between the games. Now, players don't have to reveal what their notes say. Okay, way back in the day, life totals used to be considered part of notes. So it was really really weird. Like you didn't have to. You had to keep your life total visible and trackable. But at the same time, you didn't have to reveal it. It was really, really weird. Uh, those those are right now. Uh, players don't have to reveal what their notes say. So you don't even have to record your notes in the same language your opponent can speak. Like if you happen to know, you know, Spanish or Chinese or and your opponent is an English speaker, then you can write them down in whatever language you want at regular Okay, this kind of intersects with uh, the electronic device policy. At regular, you can take and access notes, depending on the type, on an electronic device. Okay, but it has to be visible to both players, uh, and it can't be used for notes written before the match. Okay, so you can you can access notes that you wrote during during game one, during or you can access notes that you wrote during game one during game two. But you can't use an electronic device to to uh, bring up uh, a web page or something like that that you stored off before you even came to FNM. And again, that's at regular. The electronic device policy 
at, at, at comp relevance, you're basically limited to like boogie boards. All right. So we've talked a lot about notes that you take. Then during the game, let's talk about notes, your sideboard guide that you brought with you from before that you created before the match. They have to be brief. And brief is kind of set to like a page or two. You're not going to be pulling out your binder with flow charts and decision trees and stuff like that between between matches. Have you have you Jacob, have you encountered somebody with like a lot of notes? Uh, I've not encountered somebody with like a giant book of notes. I have encountered people who had like five pages double sided, and that to me seemed like a lot of notes. Yep. They also were very rapid at referring to them between games. So yeah. that's actually what we care about mm-hmm. is the the rapidity. <laughs> that's a good word. Yeah. The rapidity of accessing the notes and not necessarily the size like if you could in theory pull out a binder and flip to the exact page that you want to read it close the binder put it away in like 10 seconds total i'd probably be okay with that but if you like pull out if you pull out your your six pages of that were printed in six point font double-sided on your laser jet printer and and it's folded folded into like a crane and you have to like un origami it where no no yeah it's, none, it's, none of none of that it's the amount of time uh, it takes if it because right you you can't spend forever looking over your treatise on how you never lose to burn <laughs> uh right between games your, your treatise you just you, you what is it you pin it to the the door of the lgs yep. <laughs> you're okay um now players and spectators I'm a spectator. I can take whatever notes I want. I can just sit behind. People are playing. I can just jot down whatever. You know, hey, there's an exception to that. Players and spectators may, with the exception of authorized press, uh, may not take notes during drafting and may not access notes during drafting, card pool registration, or deck construction. Like, oh, actually, that's not players. That's just, that's yeah, that's players. Uh, so... You can't take notes during drafting. Mm-hmm. If you're a spectator, you can't take notes during drafting. The reason should be kind of obvious. We're here watching what opponents are, are picking, you know. And then I and go and go, talk to my buddy and say, yeah. hey. I mean, that's also yep. illegal, but. Yep. But it's like, here's a little sheet of paper or here I'm going to send you a text message. Yep. So right there, players and spectators, exceptional authorized press may not take notes during drafting and players may not access notes during drafting card pool registration or deck construction i guess spectators can actually like access notes during card pool <laughs> registration because what what are they gonna do with those i mean what, what are those yeah, notes? what notes it would have to be notes made before uh right it, <laughs> it's cat it's cat pictures it's cat memes off of imgur right right okay now here's something that's kind of interesting um, there's a note in the rules that talks about artistic modifications may indirectly provide minor strategic information. Like, because when we talk about notes, notes are kind of advice, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what should you do? Or they're either they're either decisions that you know, sideboarding decisions or reasons or things things that you should be thinking about during the game, or they're reminders of things that already happened, like cards in hand, stuff like that. So, artistic modifications can actually provide minor strategic information. If you play a creature with haste and you get a Sharpie and, and before the game, before the match, 
you write attack with me or play pre-combat on a creature with haste, that is technically a note that you created before the match. But it's also an artistic modification. So is that outside assistance? Is that a problem? Is it, It's like, it's really, really minor strategic information. Same thing with uh, if I, ca- if I uh, pay for an altar of a trinket mage and like have the trinket mage you know, holding an artifact and the art is of the artifact I want to go find with the trinket mage. Yeah, that's technically minor strategic information. But if you're paying money to somebody to like put a, you know, a a soul ring or whatever, one or two mana artifact you want on a trinket mage, you kind of know what you're going to go get, right? Mm -hmm. It's not actually providing you information. And it's not necessarily strategic because it's static all the time. It's the same image no matter what game you play. Right. So it's not it's not providing strategic in the sense of, it's like, oh, well, if the board state is this, the art somehow changes into the artifact that I want to go get. It's like, nah, that's not the way that works. I had, uh, had a player with a pithing needle that had written on it, you can name fetches. Right. 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 That's minor strategic information. Yep. But real realistically, it's not that much different than someone uh playing with a playmat that says that has, you know, uh untap upkeep draw. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had I've had there there have been judges, and I have seen this argument legitimately happen on Facebook, where if someone has a, a, a note in front of them or on their playmat written down, it was like and the advice was focus on what you're doing. That's what the playmat said, mm-hmm. and there was an argument that that was strategic information. It's not nearly specific enough to yeah. be... Yeah, and here's the thing. I love judges. You know, we've been doing this podcast total for, for over 10 years now. I can't articulate how how frustrated it makes me when I see judges in good faith arguing that that is significant strategic information. Focus on what you're doing. Right. Anyway, so, that's my, so, that's yeah, my preliminary so, Maybe as a counterexample, uh, what do you think an artistic modification on a card uh, would be that would be, like, major strategic information? Like some... It'd have to be a flowchart. Yeah, right? Uh, but what if it's on Chains of Mephistopheles, and it's just describing how the card works? Yeah, that's not strategic it's not information. Strategic that's information, correct. That, that's basically, like, if you, hey, judge, what's the oracle text on Chains of Mephistopheles, and you read in the oracle text, and they're like, I what? So what does it do you know, is their next so question. <laughs> Right, so, huh? Uh-huh. Like, you, you kind of have to flowchart it. Yep. That's not strategic information. That's just what the card says. Yep. There is a particular clause in Outside Assistance as it pretends to taking notes, because those notes that I created before the match is, if I refer to that during a game, okay, that is Outside Assistance. That is information from outside the game being brought into the game mm-hmm. at a time that it shouldn't be. And outside assistance normally comes with a match loss, okay? However, there is an exception, and it is considered outside assistance. So it's considered outside assistance to access notes prior to the game, during the game, but it's that specific example. Notes that I have access to at another point in the game, but I access it improperly at the wrong point in time. It does. It's not a. It's not considered a match loss. It gets downgraded to a game loss instead. Okay. So yay, not a match loss. It's a game loss. Yep. And that conveniently puts the player into a point in the match where they could legally access that information. So if it doesn't cost them the match, 
it costs them a game, but then they can now they're reading a thing they can read. You just got impatient, yep. and you wanted to you wanted to look at the information. So uh, one last point, real quick story on taking notes. Uh, players don't always know what constitute like where the what the rules for notes are, and this can include uh, players who play a lot of competitive magic. There's a PTQ I was head judging where a player had written in their little book of different life totals for different games. They'd also just written out uh, cards in their deck to remember how many copies of particular cards they had. Rather than trying to keep that in memory, they were all like, right, 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 right. And then like between, like during a game, they would go, okay, what do I have left? And they'd look at that, not realizing those are notes written before the match and therefore were not legal for them to access while they were playing a game. Oof. Yeah. So so what's up next? Oh, so next we're going to talk about a little thing called emblems. Unlike my last topic, this isn't going to take long at all. Em- right. Emblems are interesting. Uh, they're, they're, before they existed, there's not really anything like them, and there hasn't really been anything like them since. Uh, I find it interesting uh, that currently, emblems only get created from Planeswalker abilities, but nothing in the rules requires that to be the case. So it is possible that at some point in the future we'll get emblems created by other things that aren't Planeswalker abilities. F- future Sight 2 Electric Boogaloo? Yeah. Uh, future Earth Sight, uh, <laughs> where, I don't know, everything is a squirrel. So, what, what, what's the deal with emblems? Well, they exist in the command zone and cannot be interacted with at all. Can't touch them. Yep. They're in the command zone. That's where they are. That that's where they stay. Uh, they also don't have any characteristics other than the abilities that define that that were defined by the effect that created. So they don't have names. They don't have types. They don't have mana cost. They don't have colors. Uh, they're not a permanent. Uh, the the colors thing matters for things like protection. So the emblem from Chandra Torture Defiance, which uh, says whenever you cast a spell, the emblem deals 5 damage to target creature or player. That's damage from a colorless source, not damage from a red source. Yeah. So it won't... That's a, that's a little hard to get your mind around. Right. You're like, but, uh, but Chandra made it. I mean, Chandra's red. It's, it's fire, right? It's absolutely fire, but it's that cold fire, you know? It's like ghost fire. What? It's, it's cold fire? Yeah, it's, it's like a Zula fire. Yeah, it's like it's, uh, it's like a Zula fire. There you go. It's blue. It's it, only yeah. that's blue. Anyway, <laughs> um, so emblems are created by defining what player gets them and what abilities they have. So that's a that's a requirement for if an emblem's getting made, the effect making it's going to tell you who gets it, what it does. So it makes that player, whoever's getting the emblem, put that emblem with those abilities into the command zone. And then that player owns and controls that emblem. Uh, this matters for planeswalkers like the one Garrick, the, the Master of the Hunt, I want to say, that gives opponents an emblem that says creatures your opponents control get like plus two, plus two and trample or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so function in the command zone. They're not cards. They're not, they're not even permanents. Emblem's not a card type. They're just an object in the command zone. And that's it. That's all I got to say about emblems. Just kind of hovers. Just kind of hovers out there. Yeah, just sort of hangs out. Can't target it. Can't do anything. Now you can interact with. Now emblems normally they provide either like a static ability 
or they have like a triggered ability. Now you can interact with the trigger. Correct, because that's an object on the stack in the game. So if it puts an ability on the stack and you've got like a dissolve, I can dissolve the triggered ability from, or not dissolve, uh, what's the disallow? Disallow is the one I'm thinking of. I can disallow the triggered ability from Chandra Torture Defiance's emblem. But I can't do, I can't like bounce the emblem to nowhere, right? Because I can't target yeah. things in the command zone. Next up, we're going to talk a little bit about, we're not going to talk about mana abilities, because we've talked about those in the past. We're just going to talk about mana in general. Uh, so that's, okay. that's the stuff you bake from heaven, right? It is. Okay. It is mana from heaven. I've never had it before. Well, I, like the from heaven variety? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, like I've, I've never had fresh baked mana. Uh, I always get the store-bought stuff. It's not the same, I understand. Yeah, it's just, it's not as, you know, <laughs> divine and... It's not the, it doesn't have the from heaven part. It's not as enlightening and fulfilling. <laughs> no, not really. Might be, might be, it might be filling, but so anyway, let's talk about mana. So there's five colors of mana. Oh, look at this. Hey, you know, sometimes we do rules for beginners too, because everybody's got to start somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. So there's five colors of mana, white, blue, black, red, green. Okay. Those are the five colors of mana. There's actually six types of mana, though. You've got your white, blue, black, red, green, and colorless. Colorless mana. All right? So mana is represented by mana symbols. Mana symbols also can, you know, represent costs. So mana can be produced by mana abilities or other effects of spells and abilities that aren't mana abilities. So mana abilities are... Activated abilities that, when activated, add mana to your mana pool, don't have targets, aren't Planeswalker abilities. Triggered mana abilities are triggered abilities that add mana to your mana pool that trigger off of activated mana abilities. Got that? Got, got an example? Of what, a triggered mana oh, ability? a triggered mana ability. It's just whenever this land is tapped for, uh, tapped for mana, add an additional mana of the same type to your mana pool. Yeah, they've, they've printed a bunch of that. Yeah. Yes. So... So that is an example of a triggered ability that triggers off of uh, an activated, like just tapping a land for mana. Now, other spells and abilities can add mana to your mana pool, okay, uh, that aren't necessarily mana abilities. Deathrite Shaman is a good example. It's got an ability that adds mana to your mana pool, but it also requires you targeting a card in a graveyard, okay, because it targets, not a mana ability, but it does add mana to your mana pool. When an effect instructs a player to add mana to his mana pool, it goes in the mana pool. From there, you can use it. Then, because the game is a jerk, so you throw all your mana in the mana pool, if you don't use it, at the end of every step and phase, the game just comes over and just dumps the pool out. Just lifts it up and over and just everything falls out. Not only, so you, not, not only that, the game also requires you to say what you have every time you're not going to do something with it. <laughs> right. So if I add four green mana to my mana pool and then so now it's there i can use it and then i cast a spell that costs three i have to say i'm floating you know floating a green and i can then use it unless we pass priority and we go to the next step or phase in which case the game just comes over and dumps all my dumps that one green mana out and it goes poof all right if an ability would produce one or more mana of an undefined type because this, this is one of the, uh, it produces no mana instead. So this is just one of kind of like the cleanup rules. Mm -hmm. There's lots of combinations of cards in the game. Things that say, 
like Bloom Tender here, for example, says uh, it's an elf that lets you tap. For each color among permanents you control, add one mana of that color to your mana pool. Okay, so Bloom Tender is a green, green creature. So if Bloom Tender is the only colored permanent I have, it's going to tap for green. Okay, if I have a, a, a Trends Guild Courier, which is all, all the colors, it would tap for five colors. Okay, cool. But let's say somehow I only have the Bloom Tender out and it somehow became colorless. That says for each color among permanents you control, add one mana of that color to your mana pool. How much mana do you, do I add a colorless? Well, no, it says for each color. Colorless isn't a color. So that's actually an undefined, it's, it's adding an undefined type. So it's not going to produce any mana. All right. Uh, some spells and effects uh, restrict uh, how mana can be spent. Probably one of the most well-known examples for this is uh, Cavern of Souls. Yeah, so Cavern of Souls sets up a restriction on what you can use. It's the colored mana it produces from. Or it might have an additional effect on the spell or ability on which that mana is spent. Cavern of Souls actually does both. It has a restriction, says this mana can only be used to cast you know, creature spells of the particular type, and that spell can't be countered. So this that's actually doing both. Some mana increases the amount of mana produced by a spell or ability. Uh, if so, the restriction would apply to... Uh, the, the restriction applies, or the additional effects apply to all that mana produced. So if somehow I had a card that said, if a land is tapped for mana, it produces two of that mana instead, mm-hmm. uh, then and I tap Cavern of Souls for blue, I'm going to get two blue, and both of and those two blue can only be spent to cast uh, creature spells of the chosen card type. Okay? Now, I don't have to spend them to into the, into the same creature, but the restriction still holds. With me so far? Yes. Uh, so this works differently with Kinnon, if you recall from our release notes episode, because Kinnon's not a replacement effect but it's a triggered ability that's adding mana. So that's the distinction there. That's why mm-hmm. Kinnon doesn't make mana with the, the riders and restrictions right. from cards like Cavern of Souls or what have you. Right. Yeah, and when I gave the example, I made it clear where I was just like, if and yep. instead, because because triggers triggers and replacement effects can seem similar. Yes. But they're not. <laughs> some, <laughs> so there's some mana abilities that produce mana based on a type of mana another permanent could produce. It's like tap to tap to add a mana to your mana pool of a type a land that your opponent controls could produce. And it's like, okay, well what what what? <laughs> what you look at there is if the mana ability was activated right now, let's ignore any timing restrictions. Let's ignore any costs. Okay. If the costs were paid and it was activated right now, somehow, some way, what mana could it produce? And if the answer is a red and a green, okay, let's let's say just hypothetically, I've got a land that says that has green tap, add red and white, okay, and I don't have any untapped forests. I don't even have any forests. I can't I can't pay the green to tap it to make the red and the white mana. Okay, well. If I have something that looks at it with, say, like a Harvester Druid, which looks at lands, you know, tapped to produce mana that one of my lands could produce, I could tap it for either red or white, even though I don't have the green mana. I don't have the ability to activate it. If I did activate it, it would produce red or white. 
Now, this is slightly different. There is a series of tainted lands from Prophecy, I think, where it's like Tainted Isle. It's like tap for tap for black, and if you control a swamp, it can tap for blue instead. You can tap for either. Well, that's in the resolution of the ability. Okay, so if I activate that ability right now, it's going to be able to produce black, and if I if I do control a swamp, it can make a blue. So it's actually going to look at, you know, whether it's going to produce black mana or blue mana actually depends. Does that make sense? Right. So similarly, if my if I've got like a reflection pool and my opponent has a river of tears, then what I can tap the reflection pool to produce is based on whether river or not of tears is the the turn, right? The play to land for on... this turn. Yeah, I was getting there. Oh, okay. So uh, if I if I play to land, my reflection pool can tap for black off of their river of tears. But if I haven't, my reflection pool can play can tap for blue off of their river of tears. It's, yeah. Right. That that's how it works. Yep. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> yep. if an effect would add mana to your mana pool and is uh, represented by hybrid mana symbols, choose uh, you get to choose. So if you have a spell that's like. Hey, sacrifice a creature, you add mana to your mana pool equal to its mana cost. Okay? I'll give an example like that. And its mana cost just happens to be, you know, what what are your hybrid words? Blurb and blurb or something? <laughs> um, Let's make it bluke, because I like that. That's blue-black blue hybrid. It's, right. it's got bluke-bluke. Okay, so it's bluke-bluke-bluke. <laughs> I get to actually choose whether I'm going to add... A blue and a black, a black and a black, or a blue and a blue. I get to choose. Okay. Now, same thing. If uh, I add mana to my mana pool that's represented by colorless mana, uh, or, uh, I get colorless mana. If This is funny. If I add mana to my mana pool that's represented by the snow mana symbol, I get colorless. You don't get snow, snow mana. Womp womp. Because snow's not a color. No, it's not a color and it's okay. not a type. Nope. Yep, it's not a color, it's not a type. Snow mana just is mana produced by a snow, a permanent with the super type snow. Okay, Phyrexian mana is not not the whole the whole Phyrexian thing just represents a a different way to pay the mana cost. Mm-hmm. Okay, when a spell is resolving, there's like blue Phyrexian mana kind of doesn't exist. Right, I mean it does and it doesn't, but it's just it's blue mana. All right, you could call it incomplete. And then uh, uh, tapping a permanent for mana, uh, that just means activating a mana ability that includes the tap symbol in its activation costs. That's so uh, things that care about, like, whenever a permanent is tapped for mana, that's what that means. So, like, Leyline of Abundance, from, that I believe is still in standard right now? Yeah. Uh, whenever you tap a creature for mana, add an additional green. It's got to be a tap ability of that creature. Uh, that, that A mana ability of that creature with the tap symbol. So it doesn't work with Heritage Druid. Right. Is you didn't you didn't actually tap them for mana. Those those random other elves. Alright. I think that's good. Yes, no, maybe so. What's that? Uh Do we wanna call it? You wanna finish out with proxies? Yeah, because that's we're never gonna like outside of an episode like this, we're never really gonna do proxies. That's true. We're never gonna issue proxies on JudgeCast. So Never. So, next and final, I guess, item we're going to discuss are proxy cards. Uh, so we're going to go back to the Magic Tournament rules and talk about 
these good, good proxy cards that everyone's issuing, because they're really great because you don't have to spend any money on them. There are some provisions in place for what they are and what they do so that we don't uh, end up undermining things. <laughs> uh, they're used to, so proxies are used to represent legal magic cards or checklist cards, which are kind of magic cards in that they go into your deck and represent a thing that's in your deck but not in your deck. Mm -hmm. Those that can no longer be included in the deck without the deck being marked. So, you know, it got torn or it's bent so it's bent to the point where you can't get it into the deck without saying, well, that's obviously right there. If it's if it's marked in any way, uh that's that's a situation where you can go, okay, well, potentially we can issue a proxy. Yeah, so an an example is you put cards in your deck box, and one of the cards has slid down a little bit, and you put the cards in the deck box, and... Ooh, it, and it, it, like, bends really it hard. Bends, it bends really hard, because you, you you put that deck in, and it just bends that card in the bottom of the deck box. Uh, that is that is damaged during an event. Right. So, damaged during an event. Dur the during an event part is critical, because there are specific criteria per policy that must exist for a proxy to be issued. It's got to be one of the one of these two. It either has been accidentally damaged or excessively worn in the current tournament. So Brian's example if that happened in the tournament that you're playing in, that's a case where where a proxy could be issued. Uh, this also includes uh misprints and limited cards that come out of the pack damaged. Uh that's a situation yeah, that... where like I open the pack and this card's unplayable or it's, or it's marked or it's misprinted and I didn't do anything to it. This is fresh out of the pack. <laughs> so proxies are explicitly not permitted to replace cards damaged on purpose or through negligence. So if you get very, very upset and uh, unfortunately decide it's a good idea to damage your own property, proxy cards are not issued in that case. Uh, there's a decision that you made. So you did do that on purpose. It is important, I think, to note that what constitutes negligence is not defined by policy in this case, but I do think that a certain amount of you know, reason and sense can apply to situations where you can go, well, yeah, you didn't, you personally didn't damage that card, but you did leave your entire deck outside in the middle of the road, and so I'm pretty sure you had to realize there was a possibility that it was going to get like run over or something. Uh, and then the, the other, so that's, that's all in one provision. So that's one criteria it has to be accidentally damaged or excessively worn or misprinted or damaged limited product fresh out of the pack in order for us to issue a proxy. That's one way we would issue a proxy. Another way is if the card is a foil card, for which no non-foil printing exists. The, the, I like to call this the Nexus of Fate rule, but there uh, was also that one commander card that people were playing yeah. in Legacy that I can't remember the name of mm -hmm. now. Yeah, I'm blanking on the name too. It's the Grixis one, I want to say. Why am I blanking on this it's, name? It used to be very relevant. It's probably because did we do a whole lot of events. I didn't do any events where this needed to be proxied. I did in, but they were side events, but still. Yeah. Right? It's the Nexus of Fate rules. Yep. It's the, so it's basically it's the Nexus of Fate rules. It's a situation where if the only printing of the card, and this is still true for the card Nexus of Fate, the only printing of the card physically available is foil, we are permitted to issue a proxy. And it was not always the case. Uh, this was a change, I want to say, 
two years, shortly after Nexus of Fate became a popular card to play. Yeah. It was pretty obvious as to why, and it was a good decision. This And this is because fo foil cards are more prone to become warped. Right. So it is possible that you have a completely non-foil deck, but you have to play Nexus of Fate, only a foil copy exists, and if that foil warps, you can't go and buy a non-foil version, unwarped non-foil version. Right. Yes. So there's no way for you to remedy that situation. Uh, so for us, it, it like you have a legal magic card with you. You've brought the card you legally want to play, but there's no way to play it in your deck without it being marked, and there's nothing you can do about it. And we're not going to make people buy N foils every time one of them gets a little bit warped just to be able to play a card. That's not that's not healthy. So, important to keep in mind on proxy cards. So who can create proxies? Well, not players. If you thought players could create their own proxies for use in tournaments, uh, you've got another think coming. That's not how that works. I think the reason... Yeah, there's a difference between proxies and counterfeits. Right. Right. In this particular okay. case. I mean, they also can't... Well, they might physically be able to, but it is yeah. not legal to play with counterfeits either. Right. Right. Mm. Uh, but the... Uh, the what we choose to do about that might be might be different, we'll say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, right? You know, just a right. might be a like, hey, did you like I know it says Black Lotus here in the Sharpie for uh this vintage tournament, but this is a sanctioned event and uh it's not a not a proxy vintage, so mm -hmm. or what have you. So sorry that we, we can't actually let you play with that. Versus oh, nice black lotus, that's clearly not a legal magic card. So Players can't issue proxies. Who can issue proxies? Well, the head judge the for the event. The TO can oh. actually not issue proxies. I know. I see. It is only the head judge for the event. They have sole discretion over whether creating a proxy is appropriate for each situation. Got all that. So I'm doing draft, and I just pulled a really valuable foil card that I, I don't want to play it. You know, like I want to play it because it's a really good card. But I don't want to damage it because it's really, really expensive. So I don't want to reduce the, the damage. So head judge, you can give me, give me a proxy. Well, if the head judge did that, that would not be compliant with policy. Because uh, it's not accidentally damaged or excessively worn. And assuming that card is available in non-foil printings, it doesn't qualify for the other one either. But I don't want, but I want to play with it, but I don't want to damage it. Uh, and that's, you know, that's understandable. I've, I've actually gotten this exact call from players yeah. in the past. So something I have I have said to them, uh, and I'll say to Brian now, who already knows this answer, like, that card is part of your limited pool. Now, a, if you've got a non-foil copy of that card, and you want to play that instead, some provision can be made for that. Uh, but, like, you have to get a judge involved to, to sign off on all that, right? Because we don't want people pulling in cards willy-nilly from out from their collection that may or may not right. have actually been in their limited. And add that to your sealed pool? Yeah. That's going to set off some alarms. That's, that seems powerful and illegal, and you would be correct on both counts. <laughs> so, still going to involve getting, getting a judge involved, but not going to get a yeah. proxy issued in that case. So you say it's the head judge's sole discretion, but they can't, they still got to follow policy. They can't just be like, oh, well, yeah, obviously the foil Tarmogoyf, you don't want to play with that. So here's a, you know, here's a foil, uh, not a foil, here's a, here's a proxy. We'll give you, we'll give you a proxy Goyf. Yeah, this is a, this is a circumstance where uh, 
it says in uh, our documents that a head judge may choose to deviate from policy. Proxy cards is a situation in specific where there's not a whole lot that exists that justifies deviation from this policy. Uh, you gotta have a real wild card scenario for that to make sense. Yeah. Uh, so most of the time, it's their sole discretion on whether creation of a proxy is appropriate. The head judge is trusted to be adhering to these rules, right? To to these criteria. So they're the ones who decide: is this negligence? Is this intentional damage? Right? They're the ones that the head judge makes that judgment call. They look at: is is this thing that came out of the pack? Is that damage to the point of being marked? Is a proxy appropriate? Right? They're making that call. That's what it means uh, when it's talking about sole discretion. Not well. These are the rules, but you know, I don't like. This is a this is Joey's first you know competitive event. They made day two. They're drafting at this Grand Prix, and you know I don't want to make them play with their expensive foil when they don't want to. So I'm gonna write on this card for them. No, not not that, not that. That is not what that says. So you are, let's say, the head judge for an event, and you've decided to make a proxy for a player's Nexus of Fate potato chip. You're doing it because it's uh, only a foil printing. Cool, rock on. How do you do it? What's it going to do? How's it going to work? Well, they're going to include that proxy that you draw up in their deck. It must be denoted on the proxy it's, that it's clearly a proxy and what card it's a proxy for. So you can't just give them a mountain and say, this is your Nexus of Fate. You're not running any mountains, right? Yeah, okay, this is your Nexus of Fate. Just tell everybody that when you play this that, that this is Nexus of Fate <laughs> in your deck. No, 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 no. You got to yeah. get out your Sharpie. <laughs> And right on that bad boy, uh, I like to write the name, I like to put the mana cost, I like to, depending on the amount of time I have, yep. do some fun art, you know, like to make a, a try to make a, a fun connection with the player who you know, took time out of their tournament to recognize that their card they would be playing could be a problem and are proactively trying to fix it. You know, try to make that experience enjoyable in some way. Um, and then... After they have that proxy card, it's in their deck, wherever it's supposed to be, uh, the original card, the, the, the legal card that they have a proxy for, it's got to be kept with them during the match. And any time that card is in a public zone, so we can see it and whatnot, it, it gets, the proxy, the proxy gets replaced by the real card. Uh, and this is... Almost like a checklist card, right? Conceptually? Yeah, it's basically right. like a checklist card. This is provided the card itself is recognizable. If you've had something accidentally damaged to the point, so say something terrible has happened in a table like caught fire and you've got some cards in your deck that you can no longer see what they are, right, really. Like, mm -hmm. but we, we know from deck lists, from previous stuff, we know that you physically had these cards in your deck. Uh, obviously replacing it with the card that's less recognizable as the card the proxy's <laughs> intending to represent. No, that's a, that's a long con. Like, like that requires some thought. Like, if you're like, oh, I didn't buy these fetches, <laughs> oh, so I'm going to write it down on my deck list, and then before game one, I'm going to set my deck on fire. Set my deck, and, <laughs> and like, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta make it look like an accident, right? So. Right, you gotta make it look like an accident, <laughs> and then go to the head judge and be like, I, my, my Verdant Force, you know, right. my, or not my, uh, you know, Verdant Catacombs. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, it's got it. so so if in that unlikely scenario where it is actually accidentally damaged and the head judge has determined this, so the proxy's been issued, and the proxy is actually more recognizable as the card it's intending to replace than the card itself, then uh 
we're, we we don't have the unrecognizable card replace it because that doesn't help players communicate effectively. Uh, so, last thing on proxies, uh, proxies have a shelf life of one tournament, the tournament they are issued for. Uh, this is something that I have personally seen be a hang-up for some players, where they'll get a proxy for a certain tournament, and it's it, I, I've seen it happen a couple of times on Nexus of Fate specifically, mm-hmm. where they're like, I know that I can't play with this card, so I'm going to keep the foil, and I've got this proxy. Technically speaking, uh, they have to go and get a new proxy from the head judge of that other tournament because it's that head judge's discretion to determine whether or not issuing a proxy is warranted. Uh, this also makes sure that we can't have a situation where I got a card damaged once and now I'm playing with a proxy for that card until the end of time when the provision for issuing that proxy was asked to have been damaged in that current tournament. So it's not a this permanent replaces your property and is equal to your property for all intents and purposes until the end of time. Now, now I, I have cheated on this particular provision, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain what I meant. Uh, I did two events back-to-back weekends, and I proxied roughly a bajillion Nexus of Fates on weekend one. Mm-hmm. On weekend two, players came up and were like, hey, do I need to proxy my Nexus of Fates again? And I kind of did a, I remember you, you know, <laughs> hand wave, you're fine. Because um, it was the same player, it's the same deck, same card, and there was also a line of, you know, 15 players with the same problem. Right. And we didn't have time to set up a proxy station like they've had at GPs in the past with Nexus of Fate. Right. It's a bend, not a break. But it yeah, it is it's... it is I would characterize that as a deviation from policy. I also think in that particular case the deviation has a very rational and reasonable explanation. Right. And you could was... you could hand wave that as saying, Well, I issued a proxy. Uh, I, yeah. the head judge for this tournament, have issued you a proxy. Look into your box, it's there. Magic It's got my because when I proxy, you know, like you were saying, I put the name, yep. I put the mana cost. Please make sure that you write down the proper mana yes. cost. I do believe that there was a GP where somebody wrote down the wrong mana cost for Nexus Fates on a bunch of Nexus Fates. Yep. So name, mana cost. What I normally do is I write, I put the date, and then I sign it. Oh, another note on this, just, just to sort of close this out on a... So first off, when you're issuing a player a proxy, please be very clear with them that they have to get another one from another head judge for whatever other tournaments they're going to play with that card. Just get that out in front, educate the player about that so that they know, because players don't all read the MTR. I know this is going to come as as a surprise, um, but players don't all read the Magic Tournament rules. So please provide that bit of education up front so they don't get got later with an assumption they think is reasonable that turns out to be inaccurate. Uh, And secondly, if you're writing on... So say you're writing on lands with Sharpie or what have you. Uh, most players play sleeved. Make sure you give that thing a nice uh, wave around for the ink to dry. Uh, I don't like seeing <laughs> uh, smears in the inside of a player's sleeves because somebody didn't do that. Uh, because they might be able to reuse those sleeves for another tournament, but they're not going to want to if it's going to smear ink on their cards. Uh, and that's all i got to say about that. All right. I think that's our potpourri, hodgepodge, cornucopia episode. I know, I'm very full. 
of knowledge yeah. about Grand Melee. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Seriously, like, give it a try sometime. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It is absurd and wild, though. So, like, don't go in there expecting a not chaotic experience. Uh, anything else you would like to add? On our I way got out. nothing. All right. Well, everybody, thank you for listening to our episode, uh, our hodgepodge potpourri cornucopia episode on your morning, evening, drive to work, in the shower, or whatever. Uh, your drive to quarantine. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at judgecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at judgecast. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at botsrpeople2. The R is a single letter R. The rest are the actual words. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Just look for JudgeCast. You can find us there. Engage with us any way you like. We'd love to hear from you. We don't have any other social media platforms I'm aware of at this time. Uh, look forward to recording another one. But for now, I am Jacob Leachich, and I keep it fair. I'm Brian Prillin, and I keep my turn marker on green at Fogo de Chao.